<laughs> so, by the way, I had anyway. to watch that CNN town hall at three in the morning, uh, Europe time. Oh, my God. Nightmare it, material. Watching this in a hotel room combined with jet lag. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is like serious, um, you know, PTSD type situation. There was this moment afterwards, as soon as they finished the town hall part where it switched over to the commentators who were in kind of slack-jawed horror. And it was, I think it was Jake Tapper was the first one to talk. And he just said, we don't have enough time to fact check all of the lies that we just heard because we only have two hours, I think, to no, have this No, for sure. I know. I mean, actually, the, it was interesting. The commentators afterwards were doubly opinionated and negative. I think they were trying to disassociate themselves. And, and I mean, and I felt sorry for Caitlin Collins, who is a good reporter. And but it felt like, you know, she was like being thrown into the, you know, Roman Coliseum with the with the tigers or lions and, you know, and the crowd roaring, you know, thumbs down, let's let the blood flow. It was horrible. There was a, a, a very good commentary that said basically that by putting this young female reporter in there, that she was just a perfect foil for Trump. And it's just, I mean, and that it, that it, it just plays completely to what he wants to do. It's misogynistic the way he treated her, calling her nasty. He's taller than her. He's leaning over her. It's just, it, it it's part of the show. The circus um, dynamic. It's like, let me, watch me take down, the, you know, the, the, the evil media. And, you know, the media is supposed to mediate. You don't just hand it over like that. And you, and and to an all, you know, cheering Republican audience like that. See, I think that's the key thing here. And in some ways, the most chilling piece of the whole ugly spectacle is the audience. If you get the audience out of there, it deprives Trump of one of the tools that he has to try to muster the full show. The key thing, right, is that he is all about using lies to create an alternate reality and then getting people to engage in the alternate reality. So having the audience is a key part of validating the lies. And remember that many of the cheers the other night were for the most untruthful things he said. And that's what was really, I think, striking is that he, CNN, not only gave him this platform, but gave him the fully equipped, essentially, studio to uh, provide the validation of his views. That was what was so appalling. But it's also, I mean, he's a bully and a bully likes an audience. I mean, that, you know, it's not enough to stomp someone. You need somebody there laughing. Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Susan Glasser and Jane Mayer. Hello to you both. Hey, Evan. Hey, great to be with you. The talk of scandal has been abundant this week in Washington. The arrest of Representative George Santos, the verdict in the E. Jean Carroll civil trial, which found Donald Trump liable for defamation and sexual assault in a trial that he didn't even bother to show up for, followed, of course, by a CNN town hall in which he doubled down on many of his most egregious lies and new reporting around Clarence Thomas's relationship with the billionaire Harlan Crow. All four of these stories got us thinking about shame, or rather, shamelessness in American politics. Ignominy, as Benjamin Rush, one of the founders, put it in 1787, is universally acknowledged to be a worse punishment than death. But what happens exactly when a large portion of our political class simply doesn't care about shame? 
Was there, in fact, a time when shame was a regulator of behavior in politics? And if so, what happened to it? Susan, I want to start, inevitably, with George Santos. This week, a 13-count indictment against him was unsealed by prosecutors. What kind of charges is he facing? And for listeners who might not remember all the highlights and the lowlights of this guy, what are some of the uh, other uh, deceptions that we knew about uh, that may not have been identified specifically in these allegations? Yeah, George Santos may well go down in the uh, Congressional Hall of Fame, both for the shortest tenure before indictment and also (laughs) (laughs) the, you know, this is this is a body that has seen its share of uh, let's just say, liars and fabulous over time. And I still feel like George Santos is, is a good good candidate for the Hall of Fame there, Evan. The truth is, uh, we don't even know yet the truth, uh, the full extent of uh, the lies that one person can tell. I mean, everything from basic facts about his biography. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. It's like, you know, he pretended <laughs> Just to Just remembering be, them. No, I know. Right? Remember, he, he was, he's, an aspire, he's aspiringly Jewish. That's right. the one thing we know about. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a man who allegedly would, you know, basically rip off a charity for pets and take the money to dogs. I mean, you know, he was he was a, a, a Brazilian drag queen. He was, I mean, the, you can't make this up. And really, if you on in a movie, it would be like one of those like sort of made for cable movies that you'd say like, oh, my God, you know, this is this is a little bit too over the top from the screenwriters. But the charges that were unveiled this week by the Department of Justice, public integrity section, very serious. They involve uh, wire fraud, misleading about his campaign financing, taking the money. One thing that left out to me is they even allege that George Santos was falsely filing for unemployment and taking thousands of dollars in unemployment money at a time when he was employed during the pandemic. And to the point of your introduction and this golden era of shamelessness and brazen politics that we live in, George Santos has already announced that he will be running again for re-election. We'll see how long that sticks. Uh, But, you know, we can talk about the naked politics uh, behind why he hasn't been completely shunned. But the, the final point I think I should make is that George Santos is not the first and he won't be the, the last uh, crooked congressman in our in our lifetime. What is different about this is that we're living in the age of Donald Trump, for whom brazen and shamelessness have been a superpower. And I see all of the earmarks of Trump's playbook being used right now by George Santos. Even his claims, exactly Trumpian, that this is just a witch hunt. I've been complying throughout this entire process. I have no desire not to comply at this point. They've been gracious in there. Now I'm going to have to go and fight to defend myself. The reality is, is it's a witch hunt. When, you know, the law has finally come after him. And so, no, I mean, absolutely, Susan, I completely agree. I mean, what's changed is his attitude towards it all. And while it has been so completely chronic in terms of his lying that that it's so astounding that it is almost funny, it's actually really not funny for his constituents. And, and they've been the people who've been ripped off. And they, they have someone who's completely ineffective. He can't serve on any committees now. He can't do anything for them. They were lied to and cheated. And 
and this is, I think, since we're really talking about accountability, what what is worth remembering is that accountability is not just a matter of, you know, sort of symbolism and, and, and revenge. It's to make the system work. It's to make democracy work. It's so that you don't have people being ripped off by corruption and by liars and cheaters and people who won't do their jobs. And I, I think that in order to drive home how bizarre this spectacle has been, you, we have to remind people of kind of what was the classic arc of a scandal, right? I mean, the if we think back, the sort of paradigmatic example has to be Gary Hart. It was, you know, 1987. People will remember the monkey business affair, as it was known. And to give a very brief recitation, because there are a lot of twists and turns. I mean, in Gary Hart's case, he was the Democratic favorite in the presidential election. I'm here today to ask for your help, not for a candidate, not for a campaign, but for the future of this state, the future of this nation and the future of the human race. He was on a yacht. I can't overlook the yacht implications in this story. He was on a yacht called Monkey Business. He goes off, comes back. He's then spotted by a reporter from the Miami Herald going into his house in Washington with a woman, a model named Donna Rice. The reporter reports that she spent the night, but in fact didn't know that there was a back door on the house. The point being, eventually, within a week, Gary Hart has been drummed out, in effect, of politics. I've made some mistakes. I've said so. I said I would because I'm human. And I did. For accusations of having a consensual extramarital affair, which was enough to make somebody drop out at that point. I've been thinking about these various scandals as we've all lived through them. And I actually think there there are a couple there's there's one thing about the Gary Hart scandal that stands out to me, which is there was a photograph of him in the National Enquirer on this yacht or whatever, the monkey business it was called, and he had this model sitting on his lap. And I think that photographs are almost unsurvivable. Mm. Um it's if <laughs> if you're caught in the act with a picture um, whether it's Gary Hart or Al Franken or if you are Anthony Weiner with, you know, the lewd pictures that he sent on his phone. The photographic evidence, at least in the days before deep fakes, is really hard to get past. And, and, and maybe even musky crying um, mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. I think it's important to note that there are you know, because the Washington scandal is such a robust genre, there are, you know, it it would be a mistake to lump them all together. There are different categories of Washington scandal. Obviously, the sex scandal uh, uh, is one very uh, robust genre of uh, politician malfeasance. Now, the kind of public corruption case that we're talking about in the case of George Santos, the, the lying and the actually ripping off the public by misleading who you are, taking money that's inappropriate. You know, that's another fulsome uh, category of scandal. But Gary Hart is very interesting to me because it goes to this question of shame and, you know, what do we consider to be uh, uh, the qualities that we're looking for in higher office? Remember that Gary Hart was not forced to leave the U.S. Senate as a result of this, right? He wasn't a crook. He just wasn't able to get promoted in effect. And well, it's- presidential level 
politics has exactly. a, a different a different standard. It's a higher standard, supposedly, or at least it, it was until Trump. I mean, I think if you go back through history, at the, the sort of in the modern political age in America, the the, the key model of how accountability was supposed to work was Watergate. And the most one of the most important lessons from that was that Republicans went after their own. Barry Goldwater in particular turned on Richard Nixon and told him, you need to resign because you're not going to survive impeachment otherwise. And and it was when a delegation of Republicans went to Nixon that he did resign. And then it, you know, he we all watched him get on the helicopter and go away. And that was supposed to be accountability the way it works, where national interest rises above partisan interest. I mean, I think if you look back at it, you could question whether it was only national interest. And I think this is true of a lot of times when there is bipartisan um, action on a scandal or when a one party turns on their own. There's often self-interest mm. involved in it, too. And Watergate was turning out to be a gigantic drag on the Republican Party. And and sure enough, by 1976, there was a huge wave of Democrats who were elected. So the senators who went to, you know, get get Nixon out of the White House, it, it, it they may have had some of their own self-interest, too. And I think you can see that often when when people cross sides. It's when 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 they see themselves imperiled. And one of the things about Trump that we've all seen is that the Republicans don't they see their self-interest as in sticking with him still, no matter how often he loses. And we're going to get to Trump in a second. But one last note on this question of George Santos, because that's very much one of the dynamics here when it comes to crossing the line or not crossing the line. Susan, Kevin McCarthy has not called on Santos to resign. So how do you see the current his political uh, situation how do you see the incentives operating on him that may or may not bring this uh, brief national nightmare to an end? Yeah. <laughs> I, look, Kevin McCarthy is only speaker by the thinnest of margins. It took 15 ballots for him to get the job. He needed George Santos's vote along with that of many others. Uh, he needs uh, Santos's vote on almost every crucial matter that comes up right now because he can only afford to lose a couple of Republicans on any matter. Uh, there's a huge uh, debt ceiling crisis uh, underway right now. He needs George Santos's vote. He did, interestingly, say just this week, just the other day after the indictment, McCarthy said no, I will not support Santos for re-election, but he's still stopping short of saying he should resign, even though you do face increasing calls. And there have been a number of Republican members of the House who've come out since the indictment and said he should just get out of there. He should leave. You know, leverage is everything in Washington. And the real leverage is the Justice Department. And historically, what's happened is that when the public integrity section has gone after a crooked member of Congress, They've used that indictment as leverage to make a negotiated plea deal in which part of the plea deal is actually the crooked member of Congress leaving Congress. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of what the Justice Department is trying to do with this indictment to actually get Santos to leave as part of a plea deal. And and I mean, and, and McCarthy realizes that he almost inevitably will mm. lose that seat mm. to a Democrat. That's 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 part of the the calculation here. I mean, I would I would say almost always this bipartisanship or 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 turning on your own is self interest. But I guess I would disagree 
in saying that it always is. Every now and then someone rises to the occasion and does the right thing for the right reasons. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe not in a huge way, but I'm thinking, okay, John McCain running for president uh, in 2008 against Barack Obama when somebody in his audience said, you know, suggested Obama was not American, was some kind of, you know, Muslim plant or whatever. McCain said, no, no ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is all about. And so he shot down the kind of uglier, more hateful parts of the fringe base in the Republican Party. And I think that's kind of what we, you know, people mm. are longing to mm. see is that, and you, and you, you know, I suppose you could say to some extent Liz Cheney did the same. Um, and, and so, you know, you do see moments of, of this and, 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 um, but, but for the most part, if you look over the history, I agree that with, with both of you, that self-interest usually plays a big part and party interest. And it's more, but it seems more pronounced now. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. So moving on, somebody who does not have to worry about electoral accountability is Justice Clarence Thomas, who's been at the center of multiple scandalous revelations in recent weeks. Uh, People will remember the first came from an investigation in ProPublica in April, which revealed details of Thomas's financial ties to the billionaire Harlan Crow. Jane, you have reported extensively on Clarence Thomas, on his wife, Jenny. And for folks who haven't seen it, there was a terrific documentary from Frontline that that you helped report that came out this week that is just really, I think, the best encompassing portrait of this pair, this partnership uh, that we've ever seen. How would you describe the relationship between Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, and the right-wing organizations that Ginny has worked with? Well, th- thanks, Evan. Um, about the Frontline, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that. Um, I think what you have to say, since we're talking about shamelessness, is that there is a very long history here that precedes Donald Trump by decades, which is basically Clarence Thomas, as far back as 1991, was toughing it out during his confirmation hearings, saying things that have been proven to be false. Um, and, and and time has not been on his side. And if you look at the front line, you will see there are more people saying that what Anita Hill said about his behavior was absolutely absolutely true and they saw it themselves you know and yet he was confirmed hmm. um he and 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 so he really in some ways in his angry fight to get confirmed in which he played the race card and described his critics as a high-tech lynching. I think in some ways he showed, you know, he blazed the playbook, which was just be defiant and blame the press, blame the critics, put them in their corner, categorical denial, um, no apologies. We, we it, it, it worked for him. And I think, you know, certainly many other people have repeated it since. And as for their relationship, um, you know, what we're learning is it, it, it's been a really 
revealing, eye-opening time, thanks to amazing reporting being done, I have to say, by ProPublica and the Washington Post and the New York Times. I mean, they've, they've just dug up more and more damning evidence of ethics um, conflicts in the way of funding of Clarence Thomas and his wife by billionaire benefactor Harlan Crow, whether he was paying for tuition for Clarence Thomas's great nephew or buying the house in which Clarence Thomas's mother still lives and letting her live there rent free or or give you know treating the couple to summer vacations at his resort every summer or exotic cruises on his private yacht or or, or flights on his private plane, the goodies that come to hundreds of thousands of dollars over the decades. And it raises so many questions about whether, you know, appearance of conflict of interest or real conflict of interest for one of nine members of the most important court in the country who's there for life. And th- and that's what we've been seeing. Susan, we, you know, this really has been the most direct attack at the heart of the credibility of the Supreme Court that I think any of us can remember in terms of just the sheer the sheer scale of how clear it is now that the fusion of political interests and the personal luxuries of a Supreme Court justice, it, uh, and yet it is in this environment in which the Supreme Court is insulated by this, not only this kind of priestly reputation, which is really now looking more and more like an artifact of an earlier age, but also the sheer fact that there is no obvious root of accountability here. How do you see this uh, beginning to play out? Yeah, well, it's part of an overall, obviously, questioning of the uh, integrity of the institution, questioning of uh, uh, it as, as, as one of the pillars of the system, but the least transparent most opaque. Uh, That was already underway. You've seen just in the last few years, basically a plunging uh, uh, in the approval ratings for the Supreme Court in a sense that this was an institution supported across our increasingly divided political spectrum. No more. uh, Certainly the repeal of Roe versus Wade, the Republican kind of shenanigans with confirming uh, justices to the court while uh, essentially stopping Democrats uh, during President Obama's tenure from uh, confirming someone, though they had uh, the majority in the Senate to do so. It's been a part of an overall trend, I think, in our politics where all institutions are suffering from credibility, independence, and then boom, here's the scandal. And can we just talk about, like, I don't even know what the right word is for the level of benefactor that Harlan Crow has been to the Thomases. What more can there possibly be? I mean, Sugar Daddy doesn't even really cover it. <laughs> they call them, what Clarence Thomas and, and Harlan Crow call each other is Dear friends. Yeah, That's well, what you call <laughs> I would say a friend of the court. I would call it friends with benefits. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all have. I need your... better friends, by the way. I think clearly. I'm <laughs> not too. hanging with the right I friends. I mean, and you're the yacht expert. You ought to I have some friends with yachts. I'm flunking when it comes to making productive use of <laughs> Well, exactly. But, I mean, we should all have friends like that, but we don't. And it, what's interesting here, though, is there's two different things. One is that this is an opaque and not transparent institution that inherently doesn't have the same level of accountability as other institutions with a lifetime tenure of justices. But then there's also the issue of, there are, by the way, some rules, and Thomas has also flouted those. And other justices are attuned to and attentive to potential conflicts of interest to an extreme degree. And you had Clarence Thomas disclosing minor 
uh, potential issues, and then completely deciding to ignore the massive conflict of interest, the glaring uh, nature of his relationship with Harlan Crow. He just leaves that out of his forms entirely. So there's two issues here, it seems to me. One is Thomas's very flagrant flouting of the minor rules that do exist. And then more broadly, the overall issue of an, a largely unaccountable and untransparent institution. Remember, we can't even watch these oral arguments taking place, uh, you know, on on television as as the rest of our government largely is. Now, interestingly, Justice Roberts has deflected calls from the uh, Democratic-controlled uh, Senate Judiciary Committee to provide more information to this, and he's pushed it off uh, to the Judicial Conference, of which he is the chair. But again. I think you're seeing enormous political pressure in society mounting uh, to bring the Supreme Court into, you know, the 21st century on some level. Jane, how do you see that evolving? Because it's at the at this point, obviously, the focus has been on Justice Thomas. But the way journalism works is it's not going to stay there. It's going to expand. You know, any reporter who is paying close attention to this issue knows, well, if if Justice Thomas is not declaring things on his disclosures, then what about others? There's been some reporting about Neil Gorsuch, who sold a property in Colorado. uh, And there's been questions about whether he said enough to describe who it was that uh, uh, that bought that property. do you see this evolving in a way that does fundamentally change the ethical framework around the justices and how their behavior is policed? Well, I think you're right that they're under a spotlight as they've never been before. And I, I mean, reporters are crawling all over the Supreme Court at this point. So um, though it is a very, very hard subject to get any information out of, um, their disclosures are so minimal. Um, you really can't see very much. And and they're huge, I, I would call them loopholes in the disclosure rules, which are that, and, and, and Clarence Thomas is a, a very good example of how they work. A justice is supposed to disclose his wife's income. But in the case of Ginny Thomas, she has a business and you put down, he needs to disclose categories of her income, but not who her clients are. So there's no way for the public to see where the money's coming from if the spouse has a a business like an LLC, where you can't really see who the clients are and who's putting the money in their pockets. And and so, I mean, it's it's very, very difficult. And that's what their, their calls, their numerous proposals from, from the House, from the Senate to uh, reform the ethics rules for the justices. But so far, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has said, we can take care of ourselves. And, and the problem is there's no enforcement mechanism. Um, there's no oversight. There's no, it's an honor system on the Supreme Court. And the only real leverage that Congress has over this is the power of the purse. And there have been threats now to withhold funding from the Supreme Court if they don't improve their ethics code and, and adhere to an ethics code. But in hearings recently, um, the Republicans have taken on that issue and accused the Democrats who are trying to withhold funding of endangering the justices' lives by doing that because mm. they're they're not paying for the security for the justices then, they're saying. So they've really – I mean this has become a partisan brawl. Just one more frozen scandal. All right. Well, this – 
this gets us to where this show ultimately always needed to get, which is the subject <laughs> of Donald Trump, who was, of course, as we've said, found liable of sexual abuse in a, in a civil suit uh, just this past week. Jane just raised a really intriguing concept, this question of a frozen scandal. I think this is an idea that is becoming more and more relevant to us. You know, it's been written about in the past. Mark Danner wrote a great piece back uh, more than a decade ago about what that idea means, a frozen scandal. But how do you make sense of that concept and where we are in the never-ending saga of Donald Trump? Well, that's right. Yeah, I don't know if frozen is the right word when it comes to Trump. Uh, you know, he runs hot, not cold, uh, I would say. And, you know, he's also what he is, is a perma scandal. <laughs> he's a permanent scandal in our public life because he won't go away. Uh, and, you know, Republicans had this incredible opportunity uh, to disavow him after he lost the 2020 election, after he disgraced their party by refusing to concede defeat and to to leave office peacefully. And the result is that we're, we're stuck in this sort of a doom loop. That's what I think I've used that phrase several times in my column, the permanent Trump doom loop. And that includes living with the permanent Trump scandals. And, you know, part of, I think, one of the things that's fueling a kind of unhappiness and even rage in American politics is this feeling of the impunity and the lack of accountability that has, you know, Trump has been surrounded by this miasma of scandal, and yet he never seems to face consequences for it, even as many of those who are connected with him have been indicted, have gone to jail, have, you know, faced penalties, right? There's Trump, and he somehow keeps evading and dodging and weaving, right? And so there was always this kind of transformative fantasy, right? That, you know, Trump in the orange jumpsuit being hauled away. Well, now he's actually been arrested in New York and yet still questions about accountability. And then, you know, boom, comes this lawsuit, this civil lawsuit by the writer E. Jean Carroll. And, you know, I think a lot of people, it was a kind of a head-snapping moment in part because they've gotten so used to Donald Trump uh, basically, and his actions without impunity. And I found it amazing, talk about full circle, that the key evidence, part of the key evidence that the um, lawyers for Carroll used very successfully in this civil case against Trump was his own words on the Access Hollywood tape. Uh, you know, who can forget October 7th, 2016, the date uh, that the Washington Post broke the Access Hollywood tape Subsequently, Trump wins election, and it's been seen as this example of lack of accountability. Braziness wins in our society. Donald Trump brags about grabbing women by the pussy, says that if you're a celebrity in America, you can do anything, and he still gets elected president. Well, now, finally, here comes this moment where they use that, they play that tape there, and they show it as crucial, kind of going to the state of mind of the defendant that Trump, of course, he could have done this thing to their client. Because, in fact, that's how he views the world. And you say, and again, this has become very famous in this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. And... You know, five million dollars is that does that really count as accountability for Donald Trump or not? We'll see. But I find it amazing that after that CNN town hall, Jean Carroll is now thinking about suing Donald Trump yeah, for a yeah. third time, because basically right after being found guilty of defaming her, what did he do? The next day he went on TV and arguably he defamed her right again. Jane, this is, I think, one of the things we're trying to 
suss out in its own kind of ineffable way is whether there is an accumulating power to the apparatus of shame making. I mean, it, look, that's what the court is for. I mean, the, the, in this case, you had a jury of Americans who said this is beyond the pale. They awarded a number attached to it. May not have been a big enough number from a lot of people's perspective, but at least it was a, a process. You have him now, of course, indicted. Add, add one other data point to this. There was a piece uh, that ran in Puck shortly after the CNN town hall that was kind of interesting. Somebody who was in the room in this focus group afterwards said that actually at the end of it, and this wasn't really evident in the cheers and the roar in the hall, but if at the end of this focus group that uh, they asked people, how many of you are, are, are looking forward to voting for Donald Trump again? And actually only one person raised their hand. Do you see a subtle public disgust that might actually undermine Trump's durability? Uh, I mean, I think this there's sort of two parts to this. One, does it hurt him in the primary? I'm not really sure it does. I mean, it, you saw that audience, even if even if people had some second thoughts, that was New Hampshire. That was not the Deep South. That was they, – there are people who really love him. Um, and they just – you know, he's entertaining and they are on his side. And, you know, so I, I, I think in the primary, it, it, it may not hurt him at all. But I think in the general election – this is baggage. Mm. And I mean, unless I mean, we've seen Trump defy history in many ways in this country. But if this doesn't hurt him, it completely defies history in terms of it, it not being helpful to have a, uh, you, you know, a judgment against you for sexual assault and the potential for many other kinds of convictions here. I mean, it's, you know, we will see. But I, I don't know which voter who is on the fence about Donald Trump, right. who didn't vote for him last time when he didn't win, is saying, oh, well, now I really do want to vote for him. Well, and to the point about accountability, I think that, you know, this is a pretty modest step in that direction. Uh, Trump has been accused, credibly accused by multiple women over the years of uh, inappropriate sexual behavior, of assaulting them. Uh, he never faced any consequences except now, potentially in this one case. And by the way, he is appealing it. So we'll see if he ultimately pays the $5 million or not. More broadly, you know, I, I think that one of the dynamics that's still shaping our politics in the in the PERMA scandal that is Donald Trump is this feeling of impunity. And, uh, you know, he's been indicted in New York on the specific charge of paying hush money uh, before the 2016 election to cover up the story of Stormy Daniels, a woman with whom he, you know, allegedly had an affair, according to her. But, you know, here we are nearly two and a half years after January 6th, after the post-2020 uh, actions, hundreds and hundreds of people have been convicted for their participation in the assault on the Capitol. And yet Donald Trump and the other orchestrators of that American tragedy have not been charged by the Justice Department. They may never be charged. Uh, two and a half years after Donald Trump got on the phone and was tape recorded saying to the Georgia Secretary of State, you know, I want you to give me 11,000 votes. Uh, he has not faced charges and maybe he will, maybe he won't. He had some interesting words to say about that in the CNN town hall the other day, where it's it fascinating to me. He said, I was owed those votes because I believe I won Georgia. Fascinating and I'm sure relevant to prosecutors. But let's be real, like what Donald Trump did to E. Jean Carroll was bad. 
by her account, terrible. It doesn't get to the core of his offenses against American democracy for which he has not been held accountable. Period. I mean, there was, of course, an immediate um, move on the part of his supporters to say, well, New York, of course, they'll go after him. It's just New York and they're partisan. Yes. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens if he is indicted in Georgia. I want to end on a, a question that I think is probably lurking in a lot of people's minds here, which is we're, we, we've been talking about this. We've mentioned some Democrats, some Republicans. But isn't there a fundamental difference here, guys, between the way that the Democrats respond to scandal and the way the Republicans are responding to scandal? I mean, Al Franken was drummed out within days of this thing happening. And there's a lot of people who question whether that was the right reaction. It seems like George Santos maintains the you know somewhat diminished but persistent support of the leader of, of the party in the House. I mean, Susan, is there a difference here between the way these two parties are handling it? <laughs> well, Al Franken would definitely tell you that there is, uh, you know, and I think many people, by the way, came to regret that, actually, Evan, to, to your point. Although there were some people who saw some partisan advantage at the time because they were in the middle of a special election, uh, you know, in which there was a, a very deeply flawed Republican uh, uh, candidate, you'll you'll remember. But the basic principle, I, it seems to me, anyone who's been in Washington, you know, more than five minutes, we all know there are every kind of human nature and therefore every kind of scandal is reflected, uh, you know, in, in Democrats, in Republicans. There are Democratic sex scandals. There are Republican sex scandals. There are Democratic crooks uh, who've been in office over the years. There are Republican crooks who've been in office over the years. I do think that in this Trump era, you have a certain defiance uh, of the mainstream media, for example, of institutions. You have Donald Trump as the leader of this party who is, you know, the king of brazen. And so that is a permission slip uh, for other Republicans right now uh, to ignore some of the traditional levers that might have forced them to pay more attention to it. But you're not going to convince me uh, that there's something inherent in one party or the other. It's human nature and politicians uh, seem to attract more than their share, uh, you know, of, of, of crooks and liars over the whole course of American history. I mean, I would argue that there's much more pressure on Democrats to resign in these situations because they turn on their own because they respond to a media sphere that believes in accountability. And I think the Republicans have developed a media sphere of in Fox that is it's not it's not news at all. It's a protection system. And it's, um, you know, it's it's full of lies itself. And so they don't feel the pressure because they're not under the pressure that the Democrats are under. But I do think, you know, if you if you look back at um, the Al Frank thing, which I spent some time writing about, too, um, again, if you look closely at it, there was self-interest involved in why the Democrats turned on him. And as Susan has said, there was a special election in Alabama and um, and they the Democrats wanted to look holier than Roy Moore, who had his own sex scandals. Not hard. <laughs> Not hard. Not hard. Not hard. No, no. And Kristen Gillibrand, who led the charge, wanted to run for president on a, sort of a platform of Me Too warrior. I mean, and, and in the end, actually, it hasn't worked for her. Um, but but anyway, there's often there's often a, a mix of self-interest. But the Democrats do fold easier. 
So they want it to look holy in front of the electorate, but what happens if the electorate doesn't really care about the holy? That's part of the problem. Well, guys, we, we could do this, I think, for another two or three hours. Uh, we're going to have to call it here. Uh, thank you, Jane, and thank you, Susan. Thanks, Evan. Great to be with you guys, as always. Yeah, let's talk scandal anytime. Uh, not all scandals are created equal. We can do it every week. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.